Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Camp, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Salem's Lot, Part 2, Chapters 8 through 10. Let's start the show. The Emperor of Ice Cream section begins with Matt Burke telling Ben Mears about what happened with Mike Ryerson, and they decide to involve the machinery, Constable Gillespie and Dr. Jimmy Cody. They don't share their suspicions about vampires, although Ben isn't convinced. Ben is attacked by Susan's erstwhile boyfriend, Floyd Tibbetts, and ends up in the hospital. Susan and her mother have a fight. When Susan goes to visit Matt, they share information about Straker and Barlow before Matt confronts the now vampire Ryerson and has a heart attack after dispelling the monster. Our reading ends with a closer look at the other denizens of Salem's Lot, including the death of baby Randy McDougall, Margie Glick's strange sickness, Floyd's death, an odd discovery at the town dump, the revelation of Corey Bryant's and Bonnie Sawyer's affair, and the subsequent seduction of Corey by Straker. And finally, Mark Petrie's defense against vampire Danny Glick. Man, that is a lot. A lot did happen in this episode, Jay. You are correct. It was all so good. I'm really loving this book. Like, I know we've said this in every previous episode, but every time we get through another section, I'm just like, man, this is really good. Yeah, it it is. And it's scary, and it's well-written, and the, the story and... The characters are just like, I can't get enough of this book. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So this section starts off with epigraph of the Emperor of Ice Cream. This is the full poem by Wallace Stevens. It's in two stanzas here. And I have to be honest, I think I've encountered this poem before, but I had to do some research to figure out what on earth it meant. I did too. This is the only place I've ever encountered it. I haven't like found it on my own or studied it in a class or anything. And its meaning went right over my head. I had to look it up. But once I did and learn a little bit more about its meaning and deeper themes and stuff like that, it really clicks into place with this section of the book. It's interesting when Ben actually brings up the poem later on in this section of the book, and he even misquotes it, which made me wonder, like, why did King have his character misquote this poem that he thinks is so relevant? But maybe it just makes it to seem more realistic. You, you know, and he does that again in the stand hmm. when one of the generals or military men who's supposed to be su- stopping the flu from spreading quotes Yates, but he calls him Yeats because that's how it's spelled. Uh. So this isn't the only time that King has put words into a character's mouth, but having, having them either misquoted or misrepresented in some way. It all adds to the verisimilitude, Sean. Yes, it does. W.B. Yeats. It rhymes with Keats. I will admit, Jay, that I misread our assignment and I went a chapter early. And we'll find out that this poem even means more, I think, in the next chapter that we're going to get to. So we might not spend a lot of time talking about this poem here, but I do think it's important. And if you do get a chance to read the poem and do a little bit of research, you can see how and why King brings it all together. Yes. And as I was alluding to a moment ago about when Ben misquotes the poem, The thing that makes him think of the poem is the dead body of Mike Ryerson. It makes Ben a 
a well-read author type like King think of this poem because as Ben puts it, it's a poem about the dead woman. Hmm. That was enough to draw the, the connection in Ben's mind. Yep. And Matt, of course, being the other stand-in for King, mm -hmm. recognizes the poem immediately. Right. Like, oh yeah, I know that. Doesn't everybody know yeah. uh, Emperor of Ice Cream? It's pretty common, right? Smart characters being smart. That's always a good sign. Indeed. So a lot of this section, as you could probably figure out from my summary at the beginning here, is around what's happening at Salem's Lot. We get another tour de force chapter on everything that's going on in the lot. There's that beginning of that chapter where King describes Salem's Lot in great detail, and it's just another fantastic piece of writing by King. Yeah. He ends up talking about the lot. He describes it as an evil dry cell, a malign storage battery. Mm. And we've talked about how Salem's Lot, the town, has some sort of attractive power to evil, like it is drawing evil to itself. We've even speculated on the fact that the ancient evil that was in the short stories, uh, Jerusalem's Lot, was somehow like the precursor to this, or maybe the formation of this magnet that or gravity well for evil. But I like the metaphor of the storage battery because it's it's like the the town is slowly charging. The evil is just trickling in and it's getting more and more powerful like a battery would that's charging very slowly. But it also sets up an anticipation of like when will this battery discharge? Yeah. What happens when that goes off? I think it's a wonderful metaphor to kind of kick off what is clearly starting to happen in the town. Right. And we get a lot of buildup in this section. It seems like there's a lot of people becoming vampires or getting killed or attacked by vampires in this section. Mm -hmm. Really quickly, we went from the first section we read where Ralphie Glick is attacked. And yeah, it was one guy. And then the next section, it was, oh, there's uh, Mike Ryerson and there's the other Glick boy. And then now it seems like every other page is like, oh, remember we spent all that time talking about the McDougals and we couldn't figure out why they were being talked about? Oh, well, their baby's a vampire now. And mm -hmm. Mike Ryerson's still a vampire. And this guy's a vampire. And this guy's a vampire. And this guy's going to get attacked by a vampire. And it's like, whoa, this is really escalating quickly. Yeah. It's spreading like a plague, but not in the same way that a disease would spread. But it is going from infected person to infected person. Yep. It seems to be spreading very rapidly. In a small town like Salem's Lot, if each vampire bites one other person, then you <laughs> double the number of vampires, and that's a logarithmic expansion. So eventually you're going to run out of non-vampire people to eat. And to get back to the idea that Salem's Lot is either attracting evil or the evil is, is a part of this, the people that we see succumb in this section are Corey, who is having an affair with somebody and runs off after being chased out by the cuckolded husband who chases him off after scaring him with a, mm -hmm. with a shotgun. So not exactly the most innocent of people. And the, the other person, while not evil, the baby McDougal, his parents aren't necessarily that great. And so it seems as if maybe while not exactly evil is a sort of associated with evil, right? Like his mom has been beating him and his, father's not the greatest husband 
And so we see sort of the vampires, whether by by choice or not, seem to be picking certain people to be infected here. When they try to get what I would think is a true innocent in Mark, the young boy, he's able to fight off the vampire. Yeah. It's almost like at some point you can push away this battery, but I think to your point, like there's only going to be so much before it builds up too much of a charge. Something just dawned on me now when you're talking about the McDougal baby. Like when did the, the baby get bitten by a vampire? Is this an indication or maybe a side effect of the baby's neglect of the parents not being around enough, not paying attention enough, or just some other thing? But every other vampire interaction that we have witnessed, it's happened. You have to let the vampire in, invite them in, into, your, into the window, or they catch you out in the street, or walking around the dump shooting rats, whatever it is. Where was this baby? exposed to a vampire's attack yeah that's a good point who let the vampire into the house it wasn't the baby we don't think yeah i guess not i'll have to do a closer reading of that but yeah i now that you've said that that is a good point i'm not sure how the how the vampire got to the baby and which vampire it was because the mother and father mcdougall's they are not vampires yet Correct. We don't know if they'll become vampires. So it wasn't like the parents infected or, or vampirized. <laughs> is that a word? It is. Made a vampire of their own baby. So some other vampire did this. Yeah. When? How? I'm going to take a closer look at that. Yeah. I don't want to go too far off on a sidetrack here, but that scene when they find the baby the next morning dead mm -hmm. is really sort of darkly humorous. Yeah. We know King doesn't have any boundaries here, right? Like he killed a child in the first section mm -hmm. pretty gruesomely. And, you know, now he's going to make a baby a vampire. That scene when the mother is just sort of wrenched asunder by her, the death of her baby. And she's just like, she's never seen the baby so beautiful since it's been born, first of all, because all the bruises have healed because it's now mm -hmm. a vampire. But when she like props it up and she's like trying to shake it awake and then she puts the pudding in its mouth and the, the sort of plop. <laughs> And, yeah. yeah, like <laughs> I know it's terrible and like dead babies aren't funny, but it is a darkly humorous scene that King's put in here. You don't let me go out on that branch alone, aren't you, Jay? <laughs> I, I was going to say in the right context, I think dead babies can be funny. Well, this is it. We found the right context yeah. in, the, in the middle of a soap opera vampire novel. Feel free to edit that in any way you want. <laughs> One of the interesting things here is that the town is starting to take on a life of its own. I think King is starting to attribute some of the the foundational evil that we're seeing happen here is is the town itself. It's and and that is and the town is more than just the land, but that's a big part of it. It's the people who who live in the town, it's the buildings that are built in the town. Everything comes together. There's a line and in the dark, the town is yours, and you are the towns, and together you sleep like the dead, like the very stones in your north field. There is no life here but the slow death of days, and so when the evil falls on the town, its coming seems almost preordained, sweet and morphic. It's almost as though the town knows the evil was coming and the shape it would take. It's more than just being this battery, it's more than just being this gravity well of, of evil, it's that the the town is evil. Mm. It is inherently evil. And 
anybody who's part of the town by nature or by extension is evil too. And that's why evil can prosper here. That's why evil comes here. It's just more evil. Right. This is King starting to, I think, not blame Salem's Lot for what's happening here, but I think he's maybe extending his general criticism or, or lack of lack of sympathy for small towns in America to he's exaggerating it for for effect. Right. Like he's exaggerating for effect here that it's the town. The town is what's evil and the town is just breeding more evil. And it all works because we're in the town too and we're not so great ourselves. And and we're drawn into that we're part of that, right? Yeah. I mean we're we're watching this and in embedded in the town just as much, right? Yeah. We're given this omniscient view by King so that we are all throughout the town seeing what's happening in different spots. This isn't a spoiler because we know from the prologue to this book that Ben Mears is going to survive. Mm -hmm. And we also know from the Dark Tower that Father Callahan survives. Neither one of them are original residents of the town, are they? No. And I don't know if that plays into this, that they're, they're outsiders to the town of a sort, much like Barlow and Straker are. Yes. Whether or not they're part of this evil just by being in the town and being a resident now when this is happening, or if somehow, and again, we know they survive, that maybe they're immune to this in some way because they aren't part and parcel of the town. But that is an interesting parallel between Ben and Straker, or Ben and Barlow, really. They both are outsiders. They both want to become part of this community, and they both have agendas along the way but and they're and they're both drawn to the marsden house and they both have a connection right we find isn't this the section where we find out that there was a correspondence between barlow and the original marsden right so they both have this connection to the house and that's what's drawn them to salem's Lot. are we going to end with some scene at the end where like the the villain is talking to the hero and, and the villain says we're not so different, you and I. <laughs> we're just opposite sides of the same coin. And the hero says, no, we're nothing alike. And then Barlow says, yeah, but we're both outsiders. And we both came to this town wanting to start over. And we both wanted to buy the Marsden house. And We both want to suck on Susie's neck. Oh, wait. <laughs> I might have taken it too far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure none of this is an accident on King's part. Being crafty as ever. So not that we're the only ones who are reading what King is thinking and thinking we're smart because we figured it out, but King actually sort of starts to put this into the voice of Barlow. Mm -hmm. So Barlow grabs Corey as he's running away with shit in his pants. Yeah, literally shit his pants. Yeah, being caught by uh, the woman he's having affairs with a husband. And you know, his only thoughts are like, I'm going to get out of town. I'm going to get out of town. I'm going to take whatever money I have and get out and wire for the rest and just be done with Salem's lot. So Corey's seduced on the side of the road by Barlow, as we've seen other residents be seduced by these vampires. And Barlow takes this time to start to explain what's going on and give his sort of theory of the case to, to Corey is, why am I here? Why, why you? Why not? Let me tell, tell you all about this. And he explains why, and this is something that we've thought about, that you and I have talked about, why did he choose Salem's Lot and not a city? 
when we see the vampires in the Dark Tower, they're in New York City and yeah. they're preying on homeless people, drug users, people who aren't going to be missed. And from the outset, that seems like the right idea, right? In a small town like Salem's Lot, one or two people disappear, everyone's going to be up in arms about it. In a place like New York City, one or two people disappear, no one's going to notice. It seems like a good place for mm -hmm. a serial killer, a vampire, whatever you will. But Barlow has a twist on why he has chosen Salem's Lot. He says, I might have bypassed such a rustic community as this, he reflects. I might have gone to one of your great and teeming cities. Bah! What do I know of cities? I should be run over by a hansom crossing the street? I should choke on nasty air? How should a poor rustic like myself deal with the hollow sophistication of a great city? Even an American city. No and no and no. I spit on your cities. He seems to have a lot of disdain for cities, especially American cities. <laughs> but I think that like Dracula in Bram Stoker's book of the same name, he's probably afraid of the extra life, all the extra people, all the extra witnesses, mm -hmm. the, the nonstop activity of a city, the technology of a city that would actually maybe stand in his way or make him more vulnerable or easier to catch, if you will. What do you think it is about cities that... Yeah, I think that that's part of it. I mean, even in this section that you just read, it reads like somebody who's not sophisticated and aware of what's going on, like run over by a hansom. Yeah, like it's the 70s already, dude. Like, yeah, no one's calling it a hansom, you know, like it, it's a bus or a truck or, or, or beyond that. Like, it's different in that you're right, that futuristic aspect of it might be what scares him. I mean, he calls himself a poor rustic. Mm -hmm. Like, I just come from the backwoods. And so I'm going to play with what I know, which is small towns that ha might have the same ideas that I have. Right. And maybe they have the same fears of the unknown as people in the old olden days did. And so I can play on those superstitions. I can play on that and, and figure that out from that way. And he is old school. I mean, the whole reason he, he's, he has this whole correspondence with Marston, like we were writing letters. I'm, I'm not sure how they connected up in the first place, but like they're writing letters back and forth. And he's like, ah, oh, yes, over in the new world, there's a man named Motson. I shall make his acquaintance. Go there. <laughs> exactly. They, they met on a uh, serial killer chat line. <laughs> I'll cable you with my information. <laughs> Be sure to send my regards. Some of the uh, research I did for this section actually revealed that Tabitha King said something to Stephen King as he was forming this part of the book. And, and she said that Dracula wouldn't do well in a big city. And part of it is that stranger part of it. And I, I, I mentioned this earlier, that it's a, a common thread between Barlow and, and Ben, that they are both outsiders here. but. I think King was incorporating this idea that setting this in a city, putting Barlow in a city just wouldn't work properly. Mm. Um, and it might expose him to the dangers of, of all the things that the city has. It's hard to kind of square that exactly with Callahan's tales of his time in Manhattan with vampires. But by that point, Callahan has categorized his vampire types. Right. And he doesn't tell us that he encounters many of the Barlow types of vampires in New York. So maybe there is something to that. Maybe the 
if those are the type ones, I think. If Barlow's a type one, then they they don't do well in cities. Right. And they avoid them. And because they have a lot of agency in their environment and the people they deal with and things like that, if they don't do well in a place, they they can avoid it if they choose. Whereas the more accidental vampires, like the victims of the type ones, they don't have that agency. They don't they just have to fend for themselves wherever they may be. And this since this spreads as like a kind of disease eventually it could spread to a big city. And then once it's in a big city, it might spread very rapidly. That's true. Yeah. I think one thing that we also have to remember is that this book is set in the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. And so even our, our thinking of small towns is even less than what they might be today. I get the sense that Salem's lots pretty isolated. Yeah. We do get the sense that there's these other towns that they, you know, people go shopping at and one of the funeral homes I think is in another nearby city, but it is still fairly isolated, and so there might be those advantages as well that you know you're going to lose in the city, and so that's why Barlow doesn't think he'd fit in even as a as a person. They're running an antique business, even mm-hmm. they're not doing anything modern. They're trying to stay back to the old times as much as they can in all that they're doing. So I saw an article recently about the movie Fright Night. Okay, and apparently there's a vampire in that movie. And he has a a familiar, and the two of them run an antique store. Oh. I wondered if this story was was any influence on Fright Night, because I don't remember when that movie came out. I think it was the late 70s, early 80s. So I I believe the movie came out after King wrote this book, but having a vampire doing strange things like that in a, you know, showing up in a town and causing all sorts of problems. It's not an original idea to kings. Right. Yeah, my most recent vampire experience is watching what we do in the shadows and that obviously takes the comedic bent, which they're deep in a city and they deal with city council meetings and apartment buildings and <laughs> it does lend itself to laughs more so than a small town does, I think. I, I've seen the movie but not the TV series and I, I love how it deals in the the mundane like troubles and struggles that a vampire has because they're yes. in some ways they have to deal with all the same nonsense that anybody else does right except they have to do it all at night yes <laughs> we've touched on the fact that one of the vampire encounters in the, in this section is when mark petrie is at home in his room and uh he, he you know he has already listened to what his parents have said about him and his friend danny glick who is not a vampire appears at his window asking to be let in for not great purposes Mm -hmm. mark is able to fend him off with his model set he's got a a graveyard that's got a cross on it and he actually invites danny in to fend him off yeah he doesn't have to do that but he does and we've made that connection between mark petrie as a possible twinner of jake in the dark tower yes absolutely and we've talked before about how king has this tendency to write for boys around that age and that they have a special place in his stories as people who are able to deal with with supernatural things as well as the mundane things in a way that some of the other characters can't yeah it's like a a goldilocks age for king when he compares all of these various characters of different ages it seems very clear that if you're the same age as as mark petrie you are best suited to deal with the stresses of this type of story, the plot that that these characters experience, 
if you're younger than Mark, you're probably not going to handle it very well because you just don't have enough life experience to deal. And if you're older, then some of your childhood imagination capabilities have atrophied a bit. Mm. And that has that will make you more susceptible to the threats and, and stresses of being hunted by vampires or perhaps learning to be a gunslinger or whatever the case may be. But if you are at that age that you're right in that Goldilocks zone and you can maybe stand up to Pennywise the clown and you know, that kind of thing. Right. It's like there's something special for King and his characters that uh, at that age. And because he keeps writing these 11, 12 year old characters, he does it very well. And he makes those characters special. He makes them powerful in a way. And it's interesting to see it happen again and again. And this is, I think, the first time he's done it in a in a published work. Because Carrie, Carrie was older than 12. Right. She's in high school. But starting very early on, we have Mark Petrie as that Goldilocks age. You know, when Matt goes up against vampire Mike Ryerson, He's older and he has a heart attack as a result, right? Yeah, he's able to fend off the vampire much like Mark did. Yeah. But he needs to build up to that. Like, Mark seems to be all reaction. Mm -hmm. King puts in the narration like he's not even thinking. And actually, if he would have thought, he wouldn't be able to do what he's able to do. I think he's, they say, like, if his father was in that situation, his father would have thought what was happening and stopped and not done it. Yeah. Mark just reacts and is able to fend off Danny. He invites him in, he fends him off with the cross, and he's gone. Matt knows what he's getting into, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's already deduced that these are vampires. He has this plan. He tells Susie, keep talking. I'm going to go upstairs, but keep talking. Make it sound like we're down here. And he's got all the accoutrements he needs. He's got his cross, and he's got the words that he knows he's going to use, and this is how it's all going to play out. And he's able to succeed. But like you said, he has a heart attack right away. Like, Mm -hmm. once it dawns on him, holy shit, this is what happened to me. Ah, my heart. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. He's just too old to deal with it. He can't. And then we saw a younger child turn into a vampire in this section. Yeah. I mean, Danny's already one. The baby becomes one. So you're right that it, it is this Goldilocks age of sorts. And an even younger child died immediately. The very, the one. Ralphie. Yeah. R- Ralphie. If, if you're too young, you're, you're not going to do well. If you're much older, you're not going to do well. That's why this is the King's Goldilocks age. We'll see how this plays out. So we're more than halfway through the book, and we still have not had Mark interact with Ben Mears yet. We know it's coming because they're together at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested to see when they when they get together, what that relationship's going to be like because it seems very strong in the first in the prologue, and how that's going to impact the rest of the story. Yeah. They still haven't crossed paths with Callahan yet either. No, no. There's all these misconnections. Like, I think this is the section also where Susie and Matt and Ben have all talked about getting Father Callahan involved, but they've always had a reason not to get him involved yet. Mm-hmm. Talking about Mark, our twinner of Jake is getting us a little bit close to Dark Tower. I did not have any thinnies, but I'm guessing that Jay is a much bigger fan and closer reader of the Dark Tower series than I am, you will have some thinnies. Well, 
I don't know if it's because uh, of my bigger fandom or or, or what, but uh, maybe I'm just more willing to be loose, fast and loose with what I, with my connections. <laughs> but anyway, you look at it. Yeah, I did have a few things. There's a, a a description of the difficult rocky farmland in Salem's Lot, and King's description of how the land is sort of like a, a skin over the the rocky substrate beneath, and and how farming it is is difficult at best just reminded me so much of the rocky farmland in colibrin sturgis mm. the son of a bitch patch of land i think it was called yes. in how it was like king describes the the land in salem's lot and says that farming it is a thankless sweaty miserable crazy business and that seems just like yeah the rocky land in the Kala, so I I call that a thinny. Sure. Seems like some of the uh, farmers in Salem's lot need to get themselves a root sister to help plow the land. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Yeah, another one for me? Yeah, I've got another thing listed here. The low men of Salem's lot. We meet Franklin Bodden and Virgil Rathburn. Rathburn? Virgil Rathburn. And King describes them in great detail and then says about them, they were a part of the town that few tourists ever saw. They had developed their own protective coloration. If you met Franklin's pickup on the road, you forgot it the instant it was gone from your rearview mirror. If you met Virgil, you said hi and then couldn't quite remember who you had spoken to. So these are just examples of probably many of the people in the in Salem's lot, but King gives them many attributes that the low men share. Mm. The low men, to some degree, do some of these things or embrace some of these traits on purpose so that they do kind of fly under the radar of most people's attention. These two characters in Salem's Lot, they just kind of have it as part of their position in society, their level of wealth, the jobs they do in town, the friends they have or don't. But all those things add up to they're people who sort of fade into the background yeah. and no one really pays attention to, just like the low men. I thought that was a good connection. I, I like that one a lot, and it made a whole lot of sense when you laid it out like that. It plays back to earlier when we were discussing why Barlow has chosen a town like Salem's Lot. It's because many of these people aren't noticed. And so if a tourist or somebody's driving through, they're not going to notice some of these people. Mm-hmm. And I think that adds a layer of protection, perhaps, to what Barlow's doing. Absolutely. And I think even the other people from town who know who these men are won't notice if they go missing. Right. Because no one thinks about them when they're not visible. If they don't notice them for days or weeks, they, they, it won't even cross their mind yeah. that they haven't shown up. It recalls back to me when Mike Ryerson, before he becomes a vampire, when he's sitting outside of the view of the funeral goers at Danny Glick's funeral. Mm -hmm. And there's supposed to be another person helping him bury the body. Yeah. And that person's gone and he's not concerned at all. And I think a part of that is sort of that new England. I'm part of a community, but I'm not going to butt into other people's business. Mm. Uh, I think that might be a main trait of some sort, but he's like, all right, well, I'll just do the job myself. He's not going to go off and find this guy. He was annoyed, but he, he was willing to live with it. Yeah. And like, I think you and I can assume now that 
something bad has happened to him, right? Like a, a different vampire has probably gotten him. Probably, yeah. But Mike Ryerson, to the same point as you're making right here, like, all right, well, that guy's missing, but I'm going to go on with my life and do my thing. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, gets him attacked by a vampire. But hey, eh, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Eh. So that was a good one. I, I'm going to say that that is a solid Dark Tower thingy. Oh, thank you. And being that that's all we've got, let's move on to fun stuff. Let's do it. Fun stuff's the best. First fun stuff item I had in my notes was when Susan is faking a conversation as a distraction, she drones on and on about all these things. And one of them is plans to drive up to Camden, the town where they filmed Peyton Place. Ah. I dig how King like hangs a lantern on his elevator pitch for the book. Yeah, it's right there. Yep. I have a Susan fun stuff as well. Right after she has this sort of melodramatic soap opera fight with her mother where she smacks her across the face and I'm moving out and storms up to her room. Mm -hmm. She has this like total 70s montage moment where, you know, she's just been told by her, her mother that Ben Mears might be an alcoholic who killed his wife. And she has this like airplane type montage sequence where she figures out what's what's happening and she goes back into her past when her room which is now covered with uh, different types of posters used to have posters clipped from rolling stone and cream and crawdaddy with some of her pictures of her idols like jim morrison and john lennon and then she says she can almost see the newsprint standing out on the cheap pulp stock and you get this sort of as this swirling newspaper comes in Uh and the headline says going places young writer and young wife involved in quote maybe motorcycle fatality and the rest was in carefully couched innuendos perhaps a picture taken at the scene by a local photographer too gory for the local paper just right for mabel's kind mabel being the woman who's up on all the gossip that reminds me so much of inside view right like this could be oh yeah this is the article that would have been written by our friend richard dees for sure i mean he's certainly the the type of photographer who would show up to uh, a motorcycle crash and snap away all those photos i love it all the innuendo and over the top headline and it's good stuff fun stuff even so when you mentioned that the argument between susan and her mother slap in the face and all one of our listeners, Sean Barrows, mentioned on Facebook that another thinnest of thinnies, as he put it, was the byplay of Susan Norton and her mother was almost exactly like that between Susan Delgado and her aunt Cordelia. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And I was like, mind equals blown on that one. So it is like it's the the more matronly mother figure just basically like disapproving of everything that the younger woman is doing the choices she's making the types of criticisms the type of control that they're trying to exert and maybe even that underlying jealousy of just the younger generation so yeah a lot of parallels there so this is something that you know king has held on to and brought into the fore multiple times at this point so that was a really good connection thanks uh sean barrows for that connection very nice thank you anyone else who's reading and has any ideas feel free to send them our way we love hearing other people's perspectives absolutely another fun stuff item that i had was uh another quote that i had in that old notebook which is alone yes that's the key word 
the most awful word in the English tongue. Murder doesn't hold a candle to it, and hell is only a poor synonym. That's nice. Yeah. Good line. My final fun stuff is also a good line. King describes a ruined church where only mice now kept the Sabbath. Mm. Very evocative. I like that. Yes. Very religious mice. Reminds me of the little mice in uh, the Disney Robin Hood animated <laughs> film. Or the, the mice in Voltron. I don't remember the mice in Voltron. Well, they're, I remember them in the original Voltron, but the new, the reboot of Voltron no, has them. I haven't seen them. Yeah. The princess character has these little anime style mice that they don't speak, but they, they seem to be a lot smarter than normal mice. They're, they're, they kind of like help out, hmm. press buttons, reach things when people can't fit. Well, there you go. Yeah. I think that's going to bring us to the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in our show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover Salem's Lot, Part 2, Chapters 11 through 13. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. But I can't talk about Ultron. They were a part of the town that few tourists ever saw. Saw. Oh man, my accent. <laughs> I'm from Long Island. Sean, Sean. Let's do our podcast. <laughs> Damn it.